Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Did you ever wonder what happened during those empty millions of years between the earliest origins of the human race and the beginning of recorded history? What about those ultra-weird fossils and bizarre artifacts that mainstream science doesn't seem to want us to know about? Can we handle the truth? Hello there, and welcome to the 299th broadcast of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben, and opening the show was my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. Uh, but before we introduce our distinguished guest today, um, do I have uh, time to tell you what time it is? That, that does, what? Whatever. <laughs> what? Okay, anyway, whatever. Um, so it's... It is Paranormal Contest time, and last week's question was, what was the Pepper transcript? Well, uh, try as you might, meaning the uh, listeners, no one answered the question correctly. The answer was, an anonymous source known as Sam Pepper released a transcript of a supposed conversation between the Apollo 11 astronauts while on the moon in 1969 and Houston. Uh, about UFOs that were supposedly hovering nearby. Now, this Pepper person was otherwise unidentified and has since vanished. Uh, they he supposedly got this this transcription from a one of the the frequencies that NASA often uses, and uh, they, they always use several tra- several uh, frequencies, uh, several of which are not necessarily bro- are not broadcast to the public. Um, so it is possible that he heard uh, things that were not uh, authorized for distribution to the public. On the other hand, there's a big, long transcription here about uh, these things that were hovering near the surface of the moon, and they, they were watching these fellows run around on the moon and all this business. And What really makes me suspicious, however, is at the end, one of the astronauts says, over and out. Now, in any kind of actual communications, military communications or any other, you never say over and out. That's a Hollywood line. You say over, which means your turn to talk, or out, which means I'm all done. You don't say both. It's your turn to talk, I'm done. Well, even if they said that, it would have been. But, I mean, this is, it doesn't sound legitimate to me, if, if indeed that, that's part of the trap. So, anyway, take it as you want, the Pepper transcript. So this week's question is, in what African country did police film 24 UFOs in the sky in March 2009? If you get that right, win a copy of Forbidden Archaeology, co-authored by tonight's guest. Okay, Michael A. Cremo is on the cutting edge of science and culture issues in the course of a few months. He might be found on pilgrimage to sacred sites in India, appearing on a national television show in the U.S. or another country lecturing at a mainstream science conference, or speaking to an alternative science gathering. As he crosses disciplinary and cultural boundaries, Michael presents to his audiences a compelling case for negotiating a new consensus on the nature of reality, something we're very interested in. Michael is a member of the World Archaeological Congress and the European Association of Archaeologists, and is a uh, research associate in history and philosophy for, of, and, the, and the philosophy of science for the Bhaktivedanta Institute, based in India and California. After receiving a scholarship <clears throat> to study international affairs at George Washington University, Michael began to study the ancient histories of India, known as the Vedas. In this way, he has broadened his academic knowledge with spirituality from the Eastern tradition. He is the author of a number of books, including one of my all-time favorites, Forbidden Archaeology, with a copy right in front of me right now, uh, which he co-authored with R.L. Thompson. 
and he's working on more books, which he will tell us about later. His website, www, one of his websites, anyway, www.mcremo.com, M-C-R-E-M-O.com. And our phone numbers today, if you can tear yourself away from the conversation long enough to call, uh, locally, 401-766-1240, or from anywhere in the USA, 800-449-1240. And um, take it away, Ben. All right, Michael Cremo, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Good to be with you, Ben and Paul and all your listeners. Very good. Ben's got our first questions. Okay, so what's wrong with the human history that we have learned in school, or, well, mostly me? Well, what? Because you haven't been uh, in school did, in 50 wait, years. Did you finish with your question? I'm sorry. I kind of jumped in there. I'm sorry. No, you should have. I, I, I kind of jumped in. I was amazed really? by the way he phrased that. Uh, not well, no, because because I've had to deal with more recent historical stuff. This is true. Yes. I'm, I'm sorry, Michael, for interrupting. Go ahead. Well, what we generally see in the textbooks is something like this. The first human beings like us came into existence between 150,000 and 200,000 years ago. Before that, we're told, there were no human beings like us. There were only more primitive, ape-like human ancestors. And uh, they would say the very first of these ape-man types of ancestors, which they call Australopithecus, uh, came into existence about five or six million years ago. And before that, there were only primitive apes and monkeys. And that's the story that we see in the textbooks. But if we look at different ancient wisdom traditions, like the ancient Sanskrit writings of India or the Bible or the Koran or the accounts that we find among Australian aboriginals or Native American Indian people. Uh, we find accounts of extreme human antiquity. We find accounts that humans like us have been present since the very beginnings of life on Earth millions and millions of years ago. So... Uh, one might say, well, that's all just mythology, but I kind of wondered about that myself, so I did eight years of research into the entire history of archaeology. And what I found is that if you go back into the original scientific reports, not the textbooks, but the original scientific reports, you'll find hundreds of cases of discoveries of human bones, human artifacts, and human footprints going back many, many millions of years, far longer than the 100 or 200,000 years uh, that we see for a human presence in the textbooks. Hmm. Okay, I think you probably answered the second question there, but the third Yeah, question. well, actually, I have, I, have, I have a few more questions. So how do you feel about, like, let's say, uh, Greek mythology? Like, to put it more specifically, do you think that these human hybrid people existed, like the Minotaur and things like that? Well, I'm not going to rule those things out. We see, even in modern science, some pretty unusual transformations of organisms. Uh, there have been transplants of heads of animals and things of that sort. So it's something that's happened even in modern science. But uh, I think we have to have an expanded picture of what a living being actually uh, 
is. I mean, today, uh, most scientists would say that a human being or any other living thing is just a combination of molecules. We're just machines made of matter. But I think if we look at all the evidence, we'll see that living things have much more than ordinary matter in them. There are subtle energies, subtle mental energies that endow living entities with what we might call paranormal powers like uh, synesthesia, the ability to use one sense for another sense, uh, telekinesis, the ability of mind to move matter, uh, remote viewing, extrasensory perception, transformation, biological uh, um, transformation of biological form by mental energy. And beyond that, there's a conscious self that can exist apart from matter, and there's scientific evidence for all of these things. So if we have an expanded conception of what a living thing actually is, that, that may allow us to accommodate the kinds of things that we see described not just in Greek mythology, but, and I I don't even like this term mythology. It's sort of a value judgment placed on the accounts. Mm. I I would say uh, in the historical accounts that we find in different ancient wisdom traditions, whether it's the Egyptian or the ancient Indian or the Greek or the Roman or the Chinese or the Japanese, we find accounts of these things in a lot of these different wisdom traditions. And I think the reason that we find such accounts is because the people who were composing these ancient texts were aware of these things. That's certainly very well put and very believable. So that leads right into our next question. Um, Why... Are mainstream scientists so hostile to your point of view? Uh, Many of them are, not all of them, but a good many of them are uh, because they're very much attached to their current theories. It's, It's human nature in a sense. For example, if I love somebody and somebody tells me something bad about the thing, the person I love, I, I don't want to believe it. So today, scientists are very much in love with their theories, and if they hear something that goes against uh, a a theory in which they deeply believe, they tend not to want to believe it. They may become a little bit angry at the person who's bringing forth this information. And I think there's other reasons behind it. I think one reason is that the alternatives to the current theories all tend to involve, uh, or a good many of them tend to involve things like subtle energies, non-material, and non-material things like consciousness as something real. I mean, today, most scientists believe that consciousness is just something that's temporarily produced by the activity of molecules in the brain. And if you disorganize those molecules, as happens at the time of death, that no more consciousness. Uh, but so I think they they have a very materialistic outlook, 
it serves a purpose. If you just concentrate on ordinary matter, you can learn a lot about how to control it, manipulate it, make different technologies and things like that. But it's, that is done at the expense of ruling out vast areas of human experience like the paranormal and the non-material. Uh, you can, you can uh, get a lot of knowledge about how ordinary matter works by focusing on that to the exclusion of other things. But what you wind up with is an incomplete picture of reality. And therefore, the scientists who have chosen to focus completely on matter really object when someone points out you can't explain everything that way, that there are things that lie outside that paradigm that are real and need to be taken into consideration. Uh, I think they object to the kinds of things I'm saying because it leads to that direction of opening up the world of science to things that have now been successfully excluded from it. Mm-hmm. Well, Michael, I think you've put your finger on a running theme on this show, uh, and this comes up almost every show. We, <coughs> excuse me, we have a, a sort of Eastern mentality, perhaps of our own, that in, in my way of thinking, the Eastern mentality tends to bring things together, and the Western uh, way of thinking tends to divide them into categories, and with the assumption, a lot of assumptions, one of them being that you can understand the whole by studying its parts. So that's not necessarily true, as you have indicated. I wanted to get your idea of, um, of perhaps something that is not of relevance to prehistory, but something that, that we often talk about. We, so Of course, as a paranormal show, we sometimes deal with the idea of ghosts. And I was mentored 40-odd years ago by some of the finest names at the time, the Rhines and people like this. But there's very little after spending 40 years in the trenches, there's very little that I learned from that I still believe. There was a belief that uh, a, a ghost, quote-unquote, is a disembodied human being or the the essence uh, of someone or this this sort of business. And I have always had a problem with the non-physicality of that because many of the experiences that in my research have been very physical. And I have a problem with the idea that you can be you without your body. And you, But you seem to indicate that I might be wrong about that. What... Um, well, in your it, vision depends, of it depends upon what you mean by physicality. In, in the ancient Sanskrit writings of India, there's a concept that the human form, or the form of any living thing, is made up of two kinds of matter. And they're both material, but one form of matter is very gross, and another form of matter is very subtle. And the grosser form of matter is made up of the elements, uh, I mean, it, according to the ancient Greeks and ancient Indian people, they were categorized as earth, air, wire, water, fire, you know, that, in other words, gases, solids, liquids, things of that sort. Uh, and you can break down the solids into the different chemical elements, you know, iron and phosphorus and calcium, and the liquids, the other H2O, uh, things like that. 
and the gases, oxygen, nitrogen, carbon dioxide, and things like that. So that's one type of physical element. But according to this philosophy, there are elements that are also physical but are more subtle. And according to the ancient Indian text, these uh, subtle elements are called mind, intelligence, and ego. And they are considered to be material elements. Now, that would mean that and the real self is the conscious self. It's uh, a particle of consciousness. It's surrounded. It has its own form of pure consciousness. But in the realm of matter, this is covered over by the gross and subtle forms of matter. And, and what I believe a ghost is, it's, an entity that doesn't have a gross physical body but has a subtle material body made of mind, intelligence, and ego. And although the subtle body is not visible, it is nevertheless material. There are a lot of things like that. For example, we can't see air. But when air moves over an element we can see, like water, we can observe the effects of the air on the water. Uh, so mind and intelligence are something that we can't really see, but they are nevertheless physical. They are material, and they can act on ordinary matter in ways that we really can't explain uh, if we're going to just confine ourselves to the gross material elements, the chemical elements. So I would say the way that I understand these things is that a ghost has, a ghost is a conscious self that is surrounded by a body made of the subtle material elements, mind, intelligence, and ego and these subtle elements have the ability to act these subtle material elements have the ability to act on the gross material elements which uh, I think would explain some things how for example a ghost could become visible because the subtle material elements could act on the gross material elements. Uh, they could, it could also explain uh, the poltergeist types effects, you know, that some people observe. It would explain how they could appear and disappear. Uh, so that's how I would deal with it. I, I wouldn't see a ghost as a non-physical or non-material thing. I would see it as a subtle material manifestation. Okay, I, I see what you're saying. Now, the reason I ask is because uh, I, I initially would, on my very first <clears throat> case in 1971, I experienced, and, and along with six other witnesses, a uh, um, what, what I 
sounds like an ox cart driver literally driving by uh, in, in a wooden ox cart, and the question arose, are there ghosts of ox carts? Why do we see these things in clothes? Why are they driving cars sometimes? And it just seemed to, to be... Over the years, it sort of lent itself more to the multiple worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics than it did to anything else. But I, I certainly respect your point of view, and certainly I'm going to think more about that. Uh, but I, and having had, well, I would also respect your point of view too. I think, I'm, I mean, I think as long as people are trying to justify their views with logic and evidence, I think it has to be respected. Certainly worthy of respect. Uh, you know, so so I'm willing to entertain your point of view. I was just, you asked me what mine was, sure. so I just explained it. Okay. I'm going to send you one of my books. I don't flatter myself if you'll have time to read it. I myself have books mile high, but if you ever do get a chance to to read one of them, uh, you might uh, appreciate your comments. Anyway, uh, back to our um, topic of sort of prehistory and hist- and our interpretation of uh, the human experience, uh, as it re- I suppose uh, in respect to remote times. Uh, the uh, the notion of bizarre fossils and very strange artifacts, something that came to my attention early on in my own interest in this subject. Uh, one thinks of the uh, human and dinosaur tracks apparently coinciding with one another and alongside one another in the Paluxy Riverbed in Texas, which I've actually seen. How, can you talk a bit about that? Uh, why are they there? Well, it's, a, it's an interesting case that, you know, Paluxy River in Texas, near a place called Glen Rose in Texas, uh, there are uh, human footprints alongside dinosaur footprints. Now, I did not mention them in my book, Forbidden Archaeology, which came out in 1993. And there was a reason for that. I, I had become aware of the case. I'd read some things about it. But... Uh, the original report came out from a Christian creationist scientist, ah. and uh, he later withdrew his claims. He wrote a letter to Nature in which he decided he had been mistaken. He said, what I thought were human footprints were actually dinosaur footprints that had been eroded in such a way as to look like human footprints. So mm, on that basis, I put the case aside. Uh, but a little bit later, after the book came out, uh, there was a, an archaeology student in Texas who you know, read my book and asked uh, if she could help out with any research. So I said, to this archaeology student. Uh, why don't you go to that Paluxy River site and have a look at it? Let me know what you think. Because I hadn't visited the place myself. I had just seen the reports. Uh, you know, I, I can't visit every place uh, that I investigate in the scientific literature. So I thought, well, this would be a good thing for this archaeology student in Texas to look up. So uh, this archaeology student went there, participated in some new excavations that were being undertaken there, and in these new excavations, uh, 
footprints were found, human footprints, and uh, she sent me some photographs and reports on all of this that came out from some of the scientists who were involved, uh, the researchers who were involved in the new excavations there. And on that basis, I could see uh, that there were footprints there, human footprints, in the same layers as these dinosaur footprints. So on that basis, I, I, I have a different view of the Paluxy River case uh, than I did at the time I was writing my book, Forbidden Archaeology. At, at the time I was writing the book, I had to put that, that case in, one, in the doubtful category that needed further research. But after some further research was supplied to me, I'm willing to move that case into the credible category. Will it be in the sequel book that you plan? Uh, yes, I will be uh, having that. And I, I am at, at the moment working on a sequel to Forbidden Archaeology. Okay, we're going to talk about that too. Uh, we do have to take a commercial break at this point. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Margaret from Wisaka. I listen to Memory Lane every Sunday, 1 to 4 on WON 1240. Tune in to the Memory Lane show. More music from the 50s and 60s. Owen Radio! Owen Worldwide! And, okay, and uh, we're back here with our commercial break, of course, and we're talking about Amazon Kindle Fire, just released. $199, and it is probably, I think, probably going to be one of the most popular e-readers this year. And for those of you who are stuck in traffic around Providence and Boston, I think this is a good time for you to consider getting one of those as a gift for someone or even for yourself. So and you can read them during traffic. Well, I, well the way no. people drive around here, I think <laughs> probably do. But the idea being that, of course, you can download well over a million newspapers, books, uh, and, and with the Kindle Fire now, uh, all sorts of apps and movies and TV shows and everything you'd ever want to... Want to download, uh, especially, of course, uh, four of my books, uh, Turning Home, God, Ghost, and Human Destiny, Footsteps in the Attic, Faces at the Window, and one of no interest to this audience, Rhode Island, a genial history. And I certainly would encourage you to, and if, uh, if I can tap into our guest who's with us, uh, Michael, are any of your books on Kindle? Oh, yes, there are a number of my books are on Kindle, Forbidden Archaeology, The Hidden History of the Human Race, Human Devolution, uh, my latest book, The Forbidden Archaeologist. There are a lot of my books that are on Kindle. So there you go, folks. There are two two uh, two authors here right now who encourage you to get Kindle and uh, check out those books. Of course, naturally, you pay a lot less than you do for the print editions, and you don't have to take those four dollar a gallon trips to the to the bookstore. And it's a wonderful, again, a wonderful gift. Amazon Kindle. Check it out. Amazon.com and Staples as well. So there we have it. So we are back. Here on uh, Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, and you're listening on at WON 1240 AM and com in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. So we're talking with Michael Cremo, maverick archaeologist, good friend of ours, author of a number of books that I, I think are among the most fascinating I have ever read. 
And why don't we continue to talk about some of the more bizarre artifacts? Now, Michael, I, if if this these human footprints in the same strata as as dinosaur footprints are real, again, you know what what do you think it means? Obviously, it pushes back the origins of man, if not modern man, uh, to considerable distances from where we think it is today. Well, what it means is we need new theories of human origins, and we need new explanations for how we got here. And I think the point is that these kinds of discoveries push back our origins so far that it becomes really hard to account for our origins in terms of the Darwinian theory of evolution. Mm -hmm. So this would be a major revolution in science. It was a major revolution in science to get the Darwinian theory of evolution, but it may now time be for another revolution where we've got to go beyond that. And I, I think that's the ultimate implication of uh, the kind of evidence that reported in my book, Forbidden Archaeology, which is really a compilation of discoveries that have been, uh, that scientists have made from the time of Darwin up to the present, published in the professional scientific literature. What I've done is simply collected all these reports from the scientific literature that are not mentioned in the textbooks and put them there uh, all together for people to have a look at. And the implication is we need new explanations of human origins. We need to end the monopoly of the supporters of the Darwinian theory of evolution in the education system and start getting some alternatives into the textbooks. Okay, so that that brings us to a well something a little farther away from the original question. Where, what is your theory of where we came from? Well, be, I think before we even ask that question, we have to ask, what are we? We should know what it is we're trying to explain. You know, if you've got an object before you and you want to know where it came from, the first thing you should know is, well, what is it? So I would say we have to look carefully at what a human being is. And as I mentioned earlier on the show, many scientists today are going to say that a human being is simply a machine made of matter, a machine made of molecules, as Richard Dawkins uh, said famously. Uh, thanks we to are, Rene Descartes. Yeah, we're, <laughs> we are uh, robot vehicles blindly programmed to preserve the selfish molecules known as genes. I think there's more to it than that. I think there's, uh, we are much more than just a combination of molecules. I think there's a subtle mind element associated with the human organism that has some very unusual paranormal powers, like remote viewing, psychokinesis, and things of that sort. There's also a conscious self that can exist independently of matter. So as conscious beings, I think we don't evolve up from matter, as most scientists now believe. I think we devolve or come down from a level of pure consciousness. Hmm. I think we originally exist as beings of pure consciousness. And we can remain on that level 
But if we depart from the level of pure consciousness, then our conscious essence is covered over by gross and subtle matter. And those coverings are what we call bodies. Just like normally as human beings were meant to live on the land. But if we want to live under the water and in the alien element of water, we need a vehicle that will allow us to function in that alien element. We need a submarine or a diving suit. And where do those submarines or diving suits come from? Well, they come from intelligent engineers who understand that if a human being is going to live under the water, it needs a submarine or a diving suit. So similarly, as beings of pure consciousness, if we come into the alien element of matter, we need vehicles that will allow us to function here. And the human body is one such vehicle. There are also bodies of plants and animals. Where do these vehicles come from? Well, I think they come from a higher intelligence in the cosmos that understands that if a conscious self is going to function in the world of matter, it needs vehicles that will allow it to function there. So this higher intelligence provides those vehicles, and that's where I think they they come from. You could say I'm a supporter of intelligent design rather than random evolution. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Makes sense. So you also mentioned something about devolution, like human devolution. Would you care to explain that or extrapolate? Well, I use the word devolution in uh, three different ways. The main sense in which I use the word is that we don't evolve up from matter. We devolve or come down from the level of pure consciousness. That's the main sense in which I use the word. And... And I also use it in another sense, in terms of the progress of human civilization. Some people think that as human beings were evolving to higher levels of awareness, that can happen, but it can also happen that our human civilization can become more and more degraded, or it can, in other words, it can devolve. And, and I think we're in a, state like that right at the moment. Uh, although we're making technological progress in terms of our values and uh, things of that sort, it seems like we're on a downward path at the moment. And this is reflected in the environmental crises that we face, the political and economic crises that we face. And there's another sense in which I use the word you know, devolution, it has to do with reincarnation, which is something I believe in. Uh, some people think the only way you can go in incarnation is up. Reincarnation is up in the cycle of reincarnation. But I think it's possible to go down. In other words, the conscious self that's now in a human vehicle, if it's not careful in its next life, it may find itself in an animal or plant vehicle. Okay, well, there, there, were, there were two points before we even get get to reincarnation, something I hadn't planned to talk about, but it's certainly interesting. The idea, you touch on something very important, and, and we touch on this very frequently with people who are talking about the possibilities for alien civilizations and UFOs and all this business, which naturally falls into our purview. 
I have always thought how telling it is, if not inappropriate, that people consider advancement or an advanced civilization to be simply technologically advanced. The entire notion of advancement is based on how many gadgets people have or how, how many machines. I have always found that disturbing. It seems to me that an advanced civilization, as you imply, uh, or adva- advancement constitutes spiritual and moral advancement first. I mean, well, do you do you do you agree? Yes, I I do agree, and I would say it goes beyond. Uh, we have to have an expanded conception of what morality and spirituality mean, because some people might think that's very abstract. Mm. But part of what morality means is, say, if you have an actual moral leadership in the world, it will make sure that wealth is equitably distributed. It will make sure that everyone is able to work according to their nature. Uh, Everyone has some employment. It will make sure that nobody is cheating in the economic system so as to accumulate more than their fair share of wealth at the expense of others. It will ensure that there is not a lot of needless conflict going on in the world. It will ensure, in other words, we have to have an expanded conception of what morality and spirituality really mean. Because sometimes people think that's just uh, ivory tower sort of stuff. I'm talking about a practical morality on the part of those who are in leadership positions that would make sure that all the people in the world are living together in peace and friendship and with equal opportunity with everyone employed somehow or other according to their nature, uh, not according to necessity. Because many people, they find themselves in employment that's just not suitable for their natures, just out of necessity, or they find themselves unemployed, or uh, they find themselves without health care. So I think a real advanced civilization will be organized in such a way that everyone has employment according to their nature. Everyone has health care. Everyone has the necessities of life. And beyond that, once those material needs are satisfied, they have the opportunity to put as much of their human energy as they can into spiritual advancement. I, I think that's the definition of an advanced civilization. Okay. That raises a gazillion more questions, but we don't have time to deal with them. The notion of the human genome project, uh, I can't say that I understood everything I read, not by a long shot, but having read the documents when that first occurred, I think it was 04, there were, as I read it, 223 genes that shouldn't be there if the strictly Darwinian concept of evolution is correct. Are you? Can you address that topic? Because it seems to be relevant to what we're talking about. Well, yes, nobody has really explained how this whole genetic system came into existence, 
by the Darwinian theory of evolution. It's extremely complex. Not It's not just that there are a few genes that uh, they can't explain. That's also true. But just how the whole system uh, came into existence, they just assert that it evolved somehow. But if you ask for a detailed explanation, step by step, how it came about, it's an incredibly complex system. And incredibly complex systems don't come about by accident, as, no. as far as I'm concerned. Now, some people have interpreted uh, the exact thing that you're talking about as evidence for uh, some kind of non-extraterrestrial, let's call it extraterrestrial uh, component to our human genome. And that may be possible as far as I'm concerned, because I don't think we're alone in uh, the cosmos. I think there is intelligent human-like, there are intelligent human-like beings elsewhere in the cosmos, we're related to them, we've been in contact with them, and I think it one of the implications of the kind of thing that you're talking about is that there may be signs of this in our genome. Perhaps. Yeah, I mean, this this is something we just don't know, but it just, there was a theory of what was the quote, horizontal transfer from bacteria, I mean, whatever, however that would work. But uh, simply, uh, obviously, that, that we are perhaps more than, more than we, the average person thinks we are. There is the question, of course, which a lot of this will, will, will narrow down to in, this, in the short time we have left, Michael, and that is uh, the question of the cyclical nature of human history and prehistory. A lot of us think that things started uh, in, you know, you started in caves and you end up in 20th, 21st century cliff dwellings and apartments and things. And when you start with, with the hand tools or, or, or basic flint stuff and you end up with power tools, you know, a linear procedure from, from uh, I suppose, simplicity to complexity. But actually, uh, in your research and in the research of many others, that does not seem to be the case. It seems that we may have gone from, for as many as four or five times, from the hand tools to power tools. I mean, is that the kind of history we're looking at over a very long period? I think, yes. Uh, I think the nature of time really is cyclical, and this is an idea that we find in a lot of the different ancient wisdom traditions. People are talking a lot about the Mayan calendar That's these it, yeah. days, which involves vast cycles of time, one of which they think is coming to an end in 2012. And uh, the Greeks and Romans had this idea. If you look at the writings of Plato and Aristotle, you know they said uh, civilizations have risen and fallen many times in the, in, in the course of these vast cycles. And the ancient Sanskrit writings of India clearly have this idea of cyclical time. Uh, and during parts of the cycles, human civilizations are becoming more advanced, and in parts of the cycles, they're becoming more degraded. Hmm. So, yes, I think civilizations have risen and fallen many times in the long history of life on on Earth. And there are 
accounts of these things and the writings of a lot of the different ancient wisdom traditions. So, for, you know, for example, in the ancient Sanskrit writings of India, uh, which go back to a time when you know people would think uh, humans would be at a very primitive level of culture, you know, we find descriptions of atomic weapons, weapons resembling our modern atomic weapons. We find descriptions of how people were telling time according to the movement of atoms. We are finding accounts of spacecraft called Vimanas and things of that sort. Mm -hmm. We're finding accounts of huge cities uh, back at times when, according to the current theories of human origins, that people, if there are any people, they should be hunters and gatherers, Mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I, I do think civilizations have risen and fallen many times in the long history of life on Earth. What one example that I mentioned in one of my own books is uh, I had a friend who was a, <clears throat> a teacher from Canada, ended up living in England and traveled a great deal, and was uh, into archaeology, went to Mahendradaro in Pakistan, which is one of the more ancient cities in the Indus Valley, and uh, one of the places where a lot of strange things uh, historically uh, have apparently occurred <laughs> Uh, he and another researcher had uh, discovered, as uh, these are all things you know, as for the benefit of our listeners, the green glass phenomena. You know, the silicone in the, in the uh, silicon, I should say, in the uh, desert sand, having been heat fused into a greenish glass-like substance, which occurs, as I understand it, only under two circumstances: one, a comet impact, which apparently would had not occurred at these areas, or the second possibility, uh, the ground zero area of a nuclear explosion. Uh, he pointed out that in Mahendradaro, you can see where buildings apparently had melted in a certain circular area, and skeletons over the years, once Geiger counters were developed in our part of the world, uh, were, were found to be extremely uh, radioactive. There are things of this kind that just are sort of unavoidable giveaways that something uh, was advanced in, that, in the technological sense and, and sort of ended one cycle of a civilization at that point, and these things appear around the world, seemingly. Uh, what, what, have you found the same thing? Um, what I have found in the ancient Sanskrit writings is descriptions of weapons called brahmastras. Right. And these are weapons that's described when they go off. It, it would be like having millions of suns all together in one place. And uh, that's pretty much the description of an atomic, uh, you know, a nuclear or thermonuclear weapon. That's yeah. what it appears like. And actually, the uh, physicist, Robert Oppenheimer, who was head of the American program to develop an atomic weapon during World War II, he was also a student of the ancient Sanskrit writings of India. Mm-hmm. And when he saw the first atomic test at Alamogordo in New Mexico in 1945, he was at the bunker when the first actual test of an atomic weapon in modern times took place. He started reciting Sanskrit verses from the Bhagavad Gita <laughs> uh, describing one of these weapons, or the effect of one of these weapons. I'd heard and that. he was asked uh, about 
uh, is this the first atomic weapon? He said, well, maybe, maybe not. You know, so, uh, now I haven't been to Mohenjo-Daro myself. I would say uh, the it's a town, an ancient town that was excavated in uh, the northwestern part of the Indian subcontinent. It's now located in Pakistan, which is a little difficult to visit these days. Mm. But uh, uh, archaeologists in the early 20th century excavated Mohenjo-Daro, and it's not destroyed. So if, in fact, some of the walls of the ancient structures have been vitrified, which is the technical word for it. It means turning stone or sand into glass. Uh, that may indicate uh, maybe not a direct hit of a nuclear or type of weapon or Brahmastra type weapon there, but it may have been at some distance away. Mm-hmm. And uh, it it could have had the effect of vitrifying the stone or the brick uh, that made up these buildings without destroying them, because the the buildings aren't destroyed. Uh, They're still there, but if the reports are correct, some of the surfaces have this vitrification, uh, which means that uh, the silicon and the stone in it melted. So that could be. I haven't been there myself to personally verify this, but you say one of your friends yes, has been yeah, there and has yeah. verified it. So that what I would say the indication would be is that uh, the weapon wasn't directly on the city itself, but was either an air burst at a high altitude or it hit some place, some distance from the city. Well, certainly something like that certainly occurred. You mentioned Alamogordo. I, I, I've always been haunted by a statement, and I'm giving away my age here, but uh, by a statement by my old commanding officer uh, who was a young lieutenant present at Alamogordo where Oppenheimer was, uh, as you just said. And he described it as like being present at the opening of the gates of hell, unquote. I just, I've, I've never forgotten that. And... Uh, Hopefully, we won't see that again, although with all the nukes floating around the world, it would be a miracle if we didn't, frankly. Anyway, there is one more artifact uh, situation I wanted to mention to you. I I know that there are a lot of uh, reports of, uh, one particularly from France that kind of stands out in my mind, uh, having to do with, I I believe, some a a quarry. And and much of this occurred in the, the 19th century and was not witnessed by trained archaeologists, therefore is not taken seriously, as I understand it. Uh, quarrymen uh, sort of getting down into the depths uh, of their quarry and finding uh, remnants of the same kind of equipment they were using or something very similar to that uh, at at Strata, which would just sort of be ridiculous from our historical point of view as if someone else in in the very distant past were quarrying the same area. uh, I believe that's in your book as well. Yes, there was a case... uh you know, from the 19th century. Actually, it was from, the reports were from the late 18th century. Okay. Uh, about limestone quarries in southern France where they were quarrying and uncovered, you know, like you know, the quarry workers uncovered uh, uh, at, at very deep levels at what's called the Carboniferous period, which would go back, you know, about 
almost two or three hundred million years, they found, you know, you know, they'd gone down through 16 different levels of limestone. Yeah, they were stripping away limestone to get uh, quarry stone for buildings. And as they went down further and further, they found a level where there were uh, tools and, you know, like, you know, when you're quarrying, you know, you, you put up boards and ladders and things. So they found all that type of equipment uh, in uh, fossilized condition. And just like sometimes in the American Southwest, they see fossilized trees, mm-hmm. uh, you know, turned into stone. So th- these tools and wooden uh, planks and, and even some coins were found uh, in these very ancient levels. And, and that was actually reported in a scientific journal by a scientist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's... Uh, although the discovery was made by quarry workers, it was reported in a scientific journal, so there was some scientific documentation. Okay. I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm going to have to stop you here, Michael. I just we're, we're coming down to the end of the wire, but I want to give you a chance to talk about your books, your website, and where people can find out more about you. Well, uh, if they go to my website, mcremo.com, m-c-r-e-m-o.com, they'll see my books, they'll see upcoming interviews, like if they'd gone on, on my uh, interview link, they would have seen this interview uh, listed there. And they could also see uh, upcoming lectures that I'll be giving in different parts of the country and around the world. And uh, they can also see it, uh, about my books there. My latest book is called The Forbidden Archaeologist. It's made of columns that I write for Atlanta's Rising Magazine. So each uh, chapter in the book is very short, easy to read. It's a good introduction to my work. And if people want to go to my more classic works like Forbidden Archaeology and Human Devolution, they could also do that. Well, Michael, I've always thought that uh, your interviews with us are not only a great pleasure, but people should uh, have um, received college credit for uh, listening to the interviews. But I wanted to thank you again for being with us, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Well, thanks for letting me give a class at your on-air university. No, <laughs> thank, thank you, you very much. <laughs> Take care. Okay, Michael Cremo, everyone, mcremo.com. Okay, so a few announcements here. You want to check out my course in Science, Religion, and the Paranormal at the International Metaphysical University, intermetu.com. Accreditation is coming, which is why I did it. I take it very seriously down there. They're good folks. And you can take the whole thing online. If you live in southeastern New England, take a look at the course that Ben and I are teaching on exploring the paranormal Providence Learning Connection. That's southcoastlearning.org, and we're running out of time, so we better get. So many thanks to our esteemed producer, Steve Bianchi, and we'll see you right here on next, I should say, next Saturday at 11, what? Next Saturday, uh, Saturday. Next next Monday. This is terrible. Who writes these things? Anyway, next Monday, and... um, we will have uh, Steve Bassett with us, and Steve is the UFO activist who is furious at the White House right now for sort of uh, blowing off his um, 12,000 signature petition, and we'll hear all about that on the UFO disclosure. Ah, bureaucracy. Yes, so don't miss our weekly Sunday show tomorrow night. Tomorrow night. <sighs> what? 
Don't miss our weekly Sunday show. Sabotage. Don't miss our weekly Sunday show on CBS New Sky Radio in Boston, Pittsburgh, Detroit, and Seattle. On December 11th, we will celebrate our 300th show by spending an evening with the great si- science journalist Linda Moulton Howe to get a couple up, a complete update on what she calls high strangeness. So we'll leave you today with a quote from Albert Einstein. Great spirits have always encountered violent opposition from mediocre minds. Thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. We'll see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.